When you are experiencing chaos, you start to look for patterns that help you kind of make sense of the world. And conspiracy theory is a thing where there is no actual pattern and you're sort of finding one anyways. Author Colin Dickey is one of American hysteria's most important influences, set on examining the hidden histories of American culture, just like us. His incredible books, Ghostland, An American History in Haunted Places, and The Unidentified, Mythical Monsters, Alien Encounters, and Our Obsession with the Unexplained, were invaluable to us while making our episodes called Talking to the Dead and Alien Abductions. His newest piece, available on Scribd, is called Land of Delusion, and it explores two bizarre new conspiracy theories that are gaining traction in the U.S. and beyond, the kind that always seem to rise out of the shadowy and timeless specter of secret societies. We'll talk together about how we arrived at the conspiratorial tales we tell and how we might address this increasingly disturbing land of delusion. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. I would love to welcome Colin Dickey to our show, someone who has been an inspiration to us since the very beginning. Colin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. We're so excited. Thank you so much for being here. You're someone who has studied a lot of the paranormal and the way that people react to it, as well as conspiracy theories. And I think those two things are very much married together, which we'll get into. But to start, would you kind of tell us how you got into the study of conspiracy theories? Yeah, I I mean, it was a circuitous route. I think after my book, Ghostland, came out in 2016, you know, at that point, I was I was pretty heavily interested in kind of fringe belief or, you know, belief that just wasn't kind of accepted by mainstream science or mainstream religion. And my book came out in October of 2016. And within a month, as people may recall, the world had basically turned upside down that November. And so I think that, you know, I just wanted to know what was happening. You know, like I was sort of like a lot of people sort of trying to figure this out. And, you know, at the time, what I remember is that a lot of people were really laying the blame at Facebook algorithms and Steve Bannon's Cambridge Analytica mm-hmm. uh, and this idea that we had been sort of manipulated by, you know, data algorithms. And I don't think that's wrong, but it also seemed not the full story because I, you know, I felt like, well, these things have really existed for centuries. And it it really drove me to kind of move more historically and start to try and understand how conspiracy theories have worked in culture on a longer span, sort of not just within the past, you know, 10 years, but really kind of how they've informed uh, human culture and American culture for a long time. So that's kind of how I ended up there, more or less, I think. Yeah. And you are someone who studies culture and the way that culture interacts with belief. What is sort of the earliest iterations that you can think of? I mean, we've talked about Jewish blood libel and how these stories of secret societies kind of go back even before the 1700s when the Illuminati, which we'll talk about, began to form. So where do you see those stories sort of originating as early as possible? I mean, you can find them pretty far back. I, you know, one of the things about conspiracy theories of fringe belief generally is that they tend to be very culturally specific. So I don't tend to look beyond mm-hmm. American culture because I feel like that is something I can speak to. And, you know, I mean, when you're when you read some old dusty document and you read about some belief, it's really hard to know was this something that was sort of prevalent or was this something that just, you know, people were sort of right. mocking at the time. And so, you know, so it's been helpful and useful. But in terms of like American culture, I mean. It goes back, at least Anglo-American culture, it goes back to pretty much the moment white settlers Mm -hmm. arrived here, you know, almost immediately, you know, in the beginning, in the 17th century, it's couched in terms of kind of religious conspiracy, you know, that the devil is conspiring, you know, to to undermine this this grand project of, Mm -hmm. you know, settler colonialism. But like, by the founding of the United States, it is 
almost immediately established that there's, you know, these sort of conspiracy theories that sort of run through American culture on, on different levels and really come to define how we have related to democracy and process democracy. Definitely. So I'd love to talk about the beginning of the Illuminati theory, which we've talked about, but it's been a really long time. And it's such an important story to understand the roots of kind of the deep state and the terms we hear today. So would you mind giving us a quick rundown about how the Illuminati story came to be? And then we'll get kind of into how that affected politics. Yeah, I mean, so the the Bavarian Illuminati were a short-lived group in Germany that sort of was this kind of clandestine society that was interested in sort of, you know, philosophical answers to questions. And they sort of had initiates and a little hierarchical structure and then also kind of tried to kind of advocate some, you know, pretty radical ideas. And they were suppressed, you know, by the local authorities and sort of driven into extinction within 10 years. And that was the end of the Illuminati, you know, and that was, I believe, 17... I want to say 76 to 86. Uh, I could be wrong about that. Someone will correct me in the comments. <laughs> but what happens shortly thereafter is the French Revolution, right? And the French Revolution is so strange and shocking. You know, we, there's sort of the, the American experiment with democracy that tries to be imported to France and almost immediately becomes a sort of bloody catastrophe. Mm-hmm. So people are starting to try to kind of figure out like what, what the heck happened. And so this Scottish scientist, this guy, John Robinson, starts advocating this theory that that what had happened was this secret group, the Illuminati, had actually engineered the entire French Revolution as a sort of way to bring down the Catholic Church and the French government. And he's echoed by a French priest, Abbe Burrell, who's sort of similarly sort of coming up with the Illuminati as a, as a means of explaining what happened during the French Revolution. And it's all this conspiracy. It's the secret plot. They were never actually suppressed. They just sort of went underground and they are the hidden hand behind global events. And so by 1800, this has basically made it to America. So, you know, the United States has its first presidential elections in 1792 and 1796. You know, George Washington elected both times. So 1800 is sort of the first actually contentious presidential election. And it is riven with conspiracy theories about the Illuminati that John Adams supporters in New England are basically, you know, arguing that that Thomas Jefferson is a is an Illuminati plant that he's sort of this uh, irreligious mm-hmm. figure who is going to bring down, you know, American values. And it it turns out that then supporters of Thomas Jefferson are basically able to turn this accusation back around on John Adams supporters, sort of claiming that they're this kind of hierarchical clergy that you know is pulling all the strings behind culture. And so you get these sort of crazy accusations about the Illuminati that run through the third American presidential contest and really come to define the way in which we have used conspiracy theories to kind of make sense of of a confusing and chaotic electoral process. And it seems like what I've read about this phenomenon that happened with this election is that it seemed to be a lot about Protestantism versus Catholicism versus secular thinking that was coming into fashion. So can you expand kind of on the role that religion was playing in this early conception of the Illuminati? Yeah, I think that one of the things that was really happening was American Protestants and English Protestants saw Catholicism not just as a different religion that they sort of disagreed with on a theological sense. They also saw it as fundamentally inimical to the kind of democracy that they were trying to create. You know, and again, this this idea that like Catholics will vote exactly how their priest or their pope tells mm-hmm. them was a very common assumption and it wasn't just motivated by bigotry it was it was an attempt to say these people are not they cannot be legitimate independent citizens in this new project of democracy because they will not take the vote seriously they will just do what they're told and this is a kind of slur that lasts you know sort of this anti-catholicism bent last in America, you know, pretty much until JFK in the 60s, but, you know, is pretty heightened throughout the 19th century, you know, leads to riots and, you know, murders and all sorts of, you know, garbage, you know, and it's easy to see the way in which it gets transported in the 20th century into anti-Semitic attitudes, into anti-Muslim attitudes, into anti-Mormon attitudes, 
It's this kind of recurring idea that a religion we don't like is one in which its members cannot be taken as full citizens in the project of democracy. They can't be trusted. And they're kind of not to be cliche, but sheeple, right? It's this idea that people get indoctrinated into a system. And we see this today, right? We see it accusations always about groups that are somehow in a cult, hypnotized, influenced by forces. What do you think is happening there when we're kind of accusing people of being hypnotized? What do you think that does for people? I mean, for me, it's it's a working through the tensions that sort of are inherent in democracy. And we're, we're mm-hmm. you know, a couple of days after an election where a lot of people are waking up thinking, having expected that, the, you know, their candidate for given office was going to win and seeing that that is not the case, you know, mm-hmm. which is which is different than sort of knowing your candidate is going to lose and feeling bad about it. There are people who in every election, you know, I mean, will sort of respond with disbelief that right. their candidate didn't win. And that disbelief, triggers a kind of cognitive dissonance that people process in different ways. And some people process by sort of accepting it at some level and saying, okay, we have to try harder. We, you know, we, we should have done more voter turnout. We should have been better on the issues or whatever. You have some people whose response is more sort of structural. You know, this was gerrymandered. We didn't, you know, this was Mm -hmm. legally robbed from us. And then you have other people who that disbelief feeds a kind of conspiratorial attitude that this was not a fair election. And so this idea that like, a horde of Catholics uh, will show up and do what they're told and thus swing the election is a very appealing narrative for people who are sort of struggling to understand why things didn't go the way they expected. We are similar, I think, in that we want to focus our attention on American history because, again, it would be so much harder to get a full world picture of these stories, and we don't want to go halfway in. We want to really understand. So you've brought up democracy a couple times. Do you feel like conspiratorial thinking is somehow unique to democracy, or does democracy feed it? How are those two things related? Oh, it's definitely not unique to democracy. And as I I mentioned, I mean, you can find conspiracy theories, you know, in like, you know, ancient Rome, you know, pretty much as far back as we have like written culture, you'll find conspiracy theories. What I do find, though, is that democracy as a project brings with it a certain set of sort of cognitive tensions that are different from the cognitive tensions of, say, living under, you know, an authoritarian. Mm -hmm. And you know, those are both good and bad, but it seems to have the potential for for a sense of disconnect between one's convinced beliefs and one's perceived reality. And I think that time and time again, we've used conspiracy theories as a means to massage that cognitive dissonance. Absolutely. Do you think that the freedoms that come with democracy have anything to do with the ability to think more outlandishly? No, I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, like, Certainly a, a free press allows for the the dissemination of kooky stuff, but I feel like, you know, repressive regimes also disseminate a lot of kooky stuff. It's just that the kooky stuff is coming from right. the authorities, you know? And so in a more repressive regime, you're sort of just getting increasingly outlandish and creative things that are are being sold to you as, as reality because they're coming from, you know, the party line, so to speak. Yeah. And I guess that's kind of what I mean when I say freedoms. We have this ability to sort of create individualized realities. And then I think that that can can spin out in a way where we're feeding each other with these very unique stories uh, rather than a single Illuminati that maybe we were able to get when we had less social media or less ability to communicate our individual conspiracies. Yeah, well, I do think that one of the one of the sort of grand evolutions of of American conspiratorial thinking has to do with a move from very specific conspiracy theories to kind of these increasingly amorphous and all-encompassing conspiracy theories. So, for example, the conspiracy theory that the Jesuits were behind uh, the American Civil War, that it wasn't about slavery or even about states' rights, it was it was fomented by the Jesuits. That's, that's very specific and localized. And it's very different. I mean, it's wild, but it's very different than what starts to emerge in the 20th century, specifically around anti-Semitism, which becomes in some ways kind of the er conspiracy theory, because anti-Semitism simultaneously posits 
that Jewish people are anarchic communists who are bent on destroying capitalism Mm -hmm. and also hyper capitalist bankers who are bent on wealth accumulation, you know, and this paradox is not unintentional. It's, it's productive because what it means is, you know, anti-Semitism works by basically being unfalsifiable. Anything that happens for, you know, the anti-Semite can be further evidence of the Jews attempt to control the world. You know, even so far as I, I mean, you find these really dark places on the internet where people will say the, you know, they're not Holocaust deniers. They believe the Holocaust happened, but they believe the Jews did it to create sympathy, you know, like very wild and obviously deeply offensive stuff, but it's sort of, you know, what the evolution has really been that, that conspiracy theories now are built to be utterly resistant to any kind of disconfirming evidence or, or, you know, problematic evidence that might dispel the theory. That makes a lot of sense. I know that the anti-Semitism that we're seeing now as it relates to things like the Illuminati or the deep state goes back to the protocols of the elders of Zion and the dissemination of those documents by Henry Ford in the 1930s. How do you think sort of these false documents and these creations feed into the bigger narrative of, you know, secret societies controlling the world? Yeah, I mean, so much of, I think, conspiratorial like mindset just comes out of kind of normal behaviors and practices that have just sort of been allowed to go feral in a way. So like, you know, a lot of conspiratorial thinking is sort of like an amped up version of, you know, sort of literary exegesis and and biblical hermeneutics, just the idea that you just like read a text to try and understand what it really says, but it's just sort of gone off the rails. And I think that's true of us kind of love of the archives, right? So the piece that I've written most recently that is is about the Tartarian Empire, it is built around this idea of looking at old photographs of, you know, the Chicago and San Francisco and St. Louis World's Fair, and just adamantly refusing to read them as what they are, and instead reading them as evidence of this alternative narrative. And and so that's what I'm saying, you know, what I was saying about the fact that like, you know, anti-Semitism and, you know, also the the Tartarian Empire and uh, the new chronology and a bunch of these other things have become totalizing because they're designed not only to be resistant to, you know, physical evidence and archival evidence and that kind of stuff. They're, they're designed to actually like benefit from counterexamples. Like that's just further proof. Right. You know, and again, as you know, to go to the example, you mentioned your question, I think, you know, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion is the kind of proof of concept of that because it is unreadable. It's unreadable, you know, obviously because it's vile dreck, right. but it doesn't make sense onto its own terms. It's a hodgepodge of conflicting voices and data and crap that was put together by the Russian secret police to disparage democracy and, you know, celebrate the monarchy, you know, the SARS. And so nobody who, you know, the most virulent anti-Semite who is, you know, touting the protocols of the elders Zionist proof of anything is actually reading it. And if they are, they're not advocating for a return to like SARS Russia. You know, it's like, it's like they're reading it as a document that doesn't say what it says. They're reading it, you know, in the way that like, once you believe this theory, once you believe it, like then any archival document can be made to to say whatever you want it to say. And so that's how these things work in these kind of totalizing conspiracy theories. More after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your 
schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And now, back to the show. I totally know what you mean. And I think where we go wrong a lot of times when we talk about people who believe in these types of conspiracy theories is that they're somehow stupid, easily duped, not doing their research. And I think the problem with that is a lot of these folks feel like they are doing the research and they're doing they're spending so much time on these websites that are, of course, touting misinformation. However, these folks are, I think we approach the conspiratorial mind in the wrong way a lot of the times. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, I mean, the, the phrase do your own research is a, is a mainstay of conspiratorial organizations and communities. I mean that, yeah. So for me, it's, it's not really a question of, of whether or not, you know, somebody is stupid or uninformed. I think rather conspiracy theories are about giving you permission to believe what you want to believe. Um, if you are a racist in the South in the 1960s and you do not want your your Black neighbors in your community to have equal rights because you financially benefit from them being segregated and second-class citizens, it is uncomfortable for you to um, face the fact that these people do want equal rights. And so if somebody comes along and says they are being manipulated by the Jews, that is comforting and reassuring because it, it gives you a story. And obviously it's a wrong, bad story, but you know, that is why people run to conspiracy theories because, you know, even if they posit something sort of, you know, malevolent and all-encompassing, the, the relief that they offer is sort of pleasurable in its own way. Absolutely. And also, you know, we can talk about propaganda, a big, big topic. But I wonder how much of the stories that we're hearing today are actually somehow manufactured because we hear that a lot. Russian misinformation, government misinformation. How much of this is manufactured to you versus how much of this is sort of a human emotional response to to chaos? Oh, yeah. Again, I mean, as with other kind of coping mechanisms, I think it's a very human thing that is just kind of gone off the rails in some central central way. I mean, I think that we as humans, one of the fundamental things I think our brains do is try and make order out of chaos. We try and process things. We look for patterns. And I mean, I think this is a hardwired evolutionary need. You know, when you see a bunch of leaves rustling in the jungle, you need to know what kind of thing is that coming towards you? Is it a thing you need to be worried about? And so, you know, we we always find patterns in chaos and, you know, most of those are meaningful and sometimes they're not, but that need when faced with chaos or uncertainty to look for patterns is, is hardwired. I mean, there's been studies on this. God, this was like from 2010. These researchers showed two groups of people, these these images, one of which was like a bunch of scribbly lines and sort of within the scribbly lines was a very obvious picture of a thing, you know, a, I think it was like a car or something like that, you know, sort of like as a child would draw it. And then the second picture was just scribbly lines. There was no, there's no object there. And so, you know, they'd ask people, do you see anything? They'd say, yeah, I see a car. And then the second one, do you see anything? And some people say, no, I just see scribbly lines. And some people would say, no, I do see something. And then they they looked at who were the people who were seeing something and they were people who were having 
sort of tension or uncertainty or difficulty in other points of their life, either their jobs were stressful or uncertain, or their you know marriages were falling apart, or they had sort of other family problems. And it was sort of pretty clear that like when you are experiencing uncertainty, ambiguity, chaos, that kind of stuff, you start to look for patterns that help you kind of make sense of the world. And that's, again, that's, I think it's a very hardwired human belief. It's just, you know, the conspiracy theory is a thing where there is no actual pattern and you're sort of finding one anyways. Do you feel like there are forces, not to be a conspiracy theorist, but do you feel like there are currently groups, individuals that are actively using conspiracy theories? I think it's obvious. Sure. But yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Correct. Yes. Next question. Ding, ding. <laughs> no. um, yeah. Like, but I think people on the left tend to see it as exclusively a right wing problem, and, and I think yes. it is. It is majority a right wing problem, and right wing conspiracy theories. I think are also doing. You know, they're both doing a great deal more damage to our culture at large, and they're also like literally a lot more dangerous. But I think the mistake is to think that these don't also happen on the left. I mean, certainly I remember the 2004 presidential election when John Kerry lost and, and the amount of conspiracy theories flying around that George Bush had like rigged Ohio, um, you know, was very prevalent. I think in the age of social media that has just continued to sort of spin. So, you know, I mean, the amount of things where I will see, you know, smart people I know, you know, politically left spreading facts that they see on on Twitter, on social media that, you know, is sort of fits a certain narrative, but it's not verifiable. I think it's, you know, pretty common. I think I and I've I've done this as well. We all do this. You know, it's just oh, a yeah. question of like being sort of cognizant that you're prone to doing it and trying to adjust. And we're all living in chaos. So why wouldn't we all be attempting to sort of comfort ourselves with narratives that are familiar and already kind of embedded in our thinking? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So you brought up that study, which is so interesting about how we find patterns uh, even when they're not there. And something else that you have done so much work in is the paranormal. And it made me think of how we're naturally prone to seeing faces in the dark where they maybe aren't because our brains are attempting to find a pattern just in case, right? If we see something in the dark, we're like, well, we need to address that and we need to sort of fill in the blank to make sure we're not in danger. And a lot of people have tied that biological instinct into the paranormal. So I'm interested, I imagine you find so much overlap between conspiratorial thinking and a belief in the paranormal. Would you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, the overlap would be in ways in which the paranormal, I think, allows you to give a name and a shape and a story to things that are otherwise anomalous and sort of difficult to understand. I think that's one of the things. But I also think, you know, I mean, in, in Ghostland, one of the things I looked at a lot was the rise of spiritualism and the way in which ghost belief for much of American culture was a way of dealing with and massaging the, you know, grief and the idea around death, you know, this idea yeah. that like, you know, religion, sort of mainline religion sort of does not always provide the answers that people were looking for in a way that spiritualism, this idea that, oh yeah, you could, you could still talk to your loved one. You could, yeah. you know, on a, you could do a table wrapping session and your, you know, or seance and your, your loved one would speak to you. I think that kind of thing, again, it offers a, a narrative and a, and a solution to, chaos and uncertainty and, and all these things. So I think there's a lot of a lot of overlaps. I, you know, I mean, I, I tend to think that, you know, most of the time, uh, belief in, in ghosts is fundamentally more benign and less mm -hmm. problematic than, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of conspiratorial thinking. But, you know, that's that. Yeah. What about when we think about aliens? I feel like aliens, UFOs feel closer to conspiratorial thinking as we know it. Yeah, well, right. And yeah, that was, you know, something I looked at in, in Unidentified, uh, my last book, and this idea that like, alien belief, it, it does do a lot of those things. It does, you know, sort of just solve that kind of the need to explain anomalous experiences. It also is so intertwined with the government, because unlike Bigfoot, mm -hmm. the Loch Ness Monster or Ghost, as soon as you start poking around with anomalous things in the sky, you know, the Air Force gets involved for better, for worse. And so that specific narrative became uniquely 
intertwined with government paranoia and conspiracy in, in a way that you you would never. I mean, I think I guess you could, but you it certainly wouldn't be prevalent to say that you know the government is hiding evidence of ghosts or the government is hiding evidence of like you know Champ and Lake Champlain. Like you know the, what the government hides evidence evidence of is UFOs. That's the narrative. Right. And perhaps the the ghost conspiracy would be more like possession, you know, a demon possessed person who Satan is controlling, which again feels like a similar construction of like we want something to be in control, even if we're scared of that thing. Right. Exactly. Right. As a way of sort of shaping experience in a way that you can predict and understand. Yeah. So from all the research you've done, do you see there being any particular story, whether it be about the government or about the paranormal? Do you see a gateway into conspiratorial thinking of something that is more benign? Yeah, again, there's been a lot of research done that that if you hold, you know, one belief that sort of falls under this heading of, you know, magical thinking, you are more likely to have other beliefs in that same area. I think, again, it's you are a person who is looking for patterns, who is looking for ways to understand this world and is willing to set aside scientific consensus or sort of, you know, theology to find those patterns. So is there a way to move you into something more benign? I mean, I, I guess if somebody was, you know, a hardcore conspiracy theorist, you could you could try and wean them into crystals or ghosts or something. But I think for me, what fundamentally at issue is is the question of what is that core fear of chaos, of uncertainty that's driving them? And can you address that? Can you try and, you know, as I said, I, th- I think that fundamentally people believe conspiracy theories because they do something for them. And the question for me is always, what do they do for, for a given individual? Because it's different for everybody. And can you find something else that does that thing that allows them to let go of the theories? Uh, something that our listeners know is that before making this show, quite a few years before, I had a lot of conspiratorial thinking going on with me. So that's part of why I started this show later on. And I think what replaced conspiratorial thinking for me was understanding conspiratorial thinking, right? And understanding the roots of this and doing the research that allowed me to say, okay, this theory comes from this time, which comes from this single person, and then it was disseminated by this person. And it it kind of does a similar thing for you. And I imagine that it helps you as well with all of the research you do kind of understanding this greater picture. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that, you know, yes, I am somebody who, like everybody else, is made kind of unsettled by chaos and, and having a means to cope with and control chaos and and sort of sense the order and pattern behind things is helpful. And yeah, I mean, when I, you know, am faced with a, a country that's sort of riven with conspiracy theorists who are, you know, in, in many cases, or, you know, or maybe not in many, but in more than enough cases are are resorting to violence, you know, yes, I yeah, I think that the goal to try and understand them and understand them not in a sort of empathy way, but understand them in a like, what do we need to do to these people to get them to not think this way is an attempt to sort of enforce some kind of order pattern on, you know, on something so that, you know, maybe some good will help with it. I just, you know, I go through literature and psychology studies and history and stuff like that, which is different than going through YouTube videos that tell me that, I don't know, ivermectin is the answer. Sure, sure. So I would love to hear a little bit about what your new book is going to be about, because you have a couple big conspiracy theories that you seem to be investigating. And I would just there are things I haven't heard of before. So I would love if you would give us just a quick overview of Tartaria, it looks like, and the new chronology. Could you talk a little bit about what those are? Because we just have no idea. Sure. Yeah. So so the 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 piece that is out from Scribd Originals that I spent most of the year doing is the kind of intertwined conspiracy theories of the Tartarian Empire and the new chronology. And I think, you know, a lot of what I do is try and sort of take on kind of mainstream conspiracy theories, because those seem to be the most pressing, you know, trying to understand how anti-Semitism works, whatever, QAnon. This piece was more about the strangest things I could find, and, and not just for giggles, but because I began to see how it is at the most fringe conspiracy theories that you actually you see a sort of laboratory for how these other sort of more mainstream ones get developed. And so, 
you know, I went to years ago, I went to the, to a flat earth convention and one of the flat earthers said at one point, we're the tip of the spear, because if you believe the earth is flat, you can believe anything. And so that's kind of what drew me back to the new chronology and also uh, the Tartarian empire. But the new chronology is a, is a theory that came out of Russia in the eighties by this Russian mathematician, Anatoly Fomenko that has had an extraordinarily depressing success in post-Soviet Union Russian culture. And it alleges that, in short, most everything that happened before the 13th century is a lie and didn't actually happen. That world history has basically been secretly rewritten by a bunch of nefarious Germans and other Europeans. And the purpose was to erase and efface Russia's sort of supremacy over Europe and Asia and basically the rest of the world. And so Russian accomplishments were sort of written out of the record and hidden and those those libraries were burned. You know, great Russian figures were sort of transliterated into, you know, European figures and thus sort of robbing Russia of, of its great glory. And again, hopefully it's clear that this is ludicrous, but, you know, in the kind of post-Soviet kind of freefall of Russian culture, these ideas became extraordinarily successful and have worked their way into Russian culture, you know, at all levels, basically. So that's a sort of example, I think, and what I talk about in this piece about the way in which even the most extreme, seemingly bonkers, nonsensical ideas can take root at certain moments, particularly, you know, at the sort of end of empire when sort of, you know, an established empire is basically falling apart. These kind of nostalgic narratives that are willing to to rewrite history entirely and offer an entirely different narrative based on nothing actually become quite popular. And so what we're seeing in the United States right now is the rise of this thing, which again is admittedly still very, very fringe, but it centers around this idea of the Tartarian empire, that there used to be this grand utopian empire that stretched from Eurasia, but basically all over the world. So Chicago for example, is built on the site of the once great Tartarian city of Chilongo. And, you know, because the Tartarians had outposts throughout North America and they harnessed free energy out of the sky. They were giants. They were like 10 feet tall. Mm-hmm. And the the New World Order, you know, sort of usual villains, stole their energy power and made them into weapons and triggered what gets known as the mud flood, which was a sort of cataclysmic destructive event in the 1830s and 40s that destroyed the Tartarian Empire. Having destroyed the empire, then the New World Order set about to alter the history books, again, sort of erase the historical records of the Tartarian civilization, which they were very successful at doing, except for a few key places. And so, so people who believe in the Tartarian Empire tend to think that photographs from the Chicago World's Fair, St. Louis World's Fair, San Francisco, Paris, are not of temporary exhibition spaces, but are in fact documentary evidence of the the former Tartarian empire that has subsequently been lost. Um, So it's a totalizing conspiracy theory. It, it, It offers a grand unified theory, and it's set up in such a way that even evidence directly to the contrary does not disprove the theory for its believers. It actually works to shore up that belief further. Is there any grain of truth to this? Obviously, I don't mean that there's any truth to this, but where is this coming from? Is there some kind of document like the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, or is it just sort of like people feeding off each other? Are there What are their facts? What is going on here? There's kind of like Occam's razor, there's kind of stupid person's razor that I think drives a lot of this, which is... You look at photographs of the Chicago World's Fair and you're like, wow, that is stunning. Those right. that building, you know, those buildings look beautiful. Look at that statue. Look at that pool. Look it's at incredible. all those happy people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. And then you read that it was built soup to nuts in, I think, like 18 months or something like that. Mm-hmm. And you think that seems impossible. Those buildings look ancient. Right. Now, you could do one of two things. You can either read up on it and learn that they were in fact wood structures that like jute and plaster had been sprayed on and thus have a very convincing and normal explanation for why those buildings look so good, even though they were built so fast. Or you can say, 
I refuse to believe that something that to my eyes looks so permanent was built so quickly. Mm-hmm. And thus I will now create another narrative that then begins to explain it. So, you know, the origin of the Tartarian empire, I think it really, the documents that you speak of, it, it tends to come out of a kind of estrangement from photography from a certain era that you look at photographs that are supposedly documenting a thing and you refuse to see the thing that's being documented and you start creating another story that could fit your reaction to those photographs. Which is so strange because it's so much more unbelievable than we made a crappy building and painted it and it looks really good versus like all these hundreds of thousands, you know, thousands of years have been erased. Yeah. You know, know, it's like, uh, I don't really get that jump there. It's not a question of, to me, it's not a question of, is this more or less believable? The question is, Mm -hmm. does this narrative offer things for people that another narrative, that the standard actual historical true narrative does not? And that I think, I think if, if something is pleasurable to you, you are willing to believe the unbelievable because it's it's offering you something that sort of satisfies a deep psychological need. And I think that's kind of the more fundamental reaction, I think, than, you know, the plausibility and, and historical specificity of a given conspiracy. Yeah, absolutely. And it kind of goes into this idea that you also get to be a hero. You get to be somebody who knows the secrets. You get to be someone with this special lineage. So how much do you think that idea of kind of needing that personal importance, maybe because you're feeling disempowered, how much of that do you think plays into conspiracy theories? Oh, a lot. I mean, yeah, like when you talk to people who believe in, you know, secret cabals of pedophiles who are abducting children. If you, I mean, when I, when I've talked to such people, I have often asked them, you know, what about the Catholic church? You know, which, which is a literal, I mean, the Catholic church sex scandal is a a literal conspiracy in which people conspired to break the law, to do great harm to children, to sexually assault minors. And it fits all the beats. And almost always people are not interested in talking about the Catholic church sex scandal. And it is because precisely your point, they don't get to play a part in it. That story was broken by journalists. It has come to light. There are, you know, I I suppose there are still new sort of allegations and things that that happen, but, but the story itself is now the public record and there's no real excitement or promise to delving into that story if you're sort of an amateur, you know, web spelunker. More after this. Friends, hello. I'm Mike Regnetta, the host of Never Post, a new and independent news podcast about and for the internet. In addition to bringing you the latest in current events, we try to figure out why the internet and the world because of the internet is the way it is. How did influencers destroy tween fashion? What is posting disease and how do you ensure you don't catch it? From what device must one send important emails? We talk about what's going on online and ask together why. Why are we like this? Find Never Post wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the show. So do you want to tell us about uh, the other conspiracy theory that you were writing about? Right. So in addition to the, the script piece on the Tartarian Empire and the new chronology, um, the next book touches on a lot of what we've been talking about before. It's on how conspiracy theories around secret society kind of control and massage our relationship to democracy from the Puritans to the Illuminati election of the 1800s to you know anti-Catholic conspiracy theories all the way up to QAnon and fears of lizard people and stuff like that. So that'll that'll be out next summer. That's by Viking. Yeah. So, okay. If we take all this into consideration, I think the big question that everybody has right now is how do we deprogram people from conspiratorial thinking? And I was reading some of your interviews and some of the things you've written more recently about conspiracy theories. And something that stuck out to me was not only do we need to understand how to bring people out of this, but we also have to learn to coexist with this type of thinking. Could you expand on what you mean when you say coexist? I mean, you know, a couple of things. First of all, the the we is really important, I think. And, you know, one of the things I write about in my book is like, if you are the target of these conspiracy theories, if you are Jewish, if you are Black, mm-hmm. if you are a trans person, 
your job is just to survive. Like you, you just yeah. need to take care of yourself. And, you know, and I think those of us who, you know, don't have those subject positions have a, have a real obligation to look out for those folks and really, you know, put ourselves out there. And so, you know, as a, as a white straight cis dude, I see my obligation to engage with people as very different than, you know, my black or trans or, or Jewish sure. friends or whomever. And so I see my job and my obligation to, you know, work wherever I can with trying to understand, you know, people who have these beliefs to sort of, again, sort of figure out what is the sort of basic psychological need that is being satisfied with these beliefs. And can I find some other way to engage with them or, you know, kind of do a little kind of bait and switch where I can give them something else to focus on that is still going to satisfy that that psychological need, but is grounded in reality, or at least, you know, moves off of the kind of more extreme and, and you know, kind of phobic or, or violent conspiracy theories. So I think for those of us who have that capacity and have the safety to engage with those yeah. folks, that I think is our obligation. Well, and it's interesting you say that because, you know, I'm non-binary queer, and I think that I have sort of this is the first time I'm talking about conspiracy theories in quite a long time for precisely that reason, because I'm very scared. And this sort of rhetoric around trans people brings up so many different conspiracy theories, right? It brings up the idea that we are part of some kind of secret society or we're somehow programmed to overthrow the religious institutions of America and uh, indoctrinate the youth into our agenda. And so I think it gets really scary, like you said, and I just so appreciate that idea because I don't feel like I have the stomach for it right now. Yeah. And again, I don't think that that should be anybody's obligation if they are, you know, of a group or a subject position that's being targeted by these things. I think that, yeah, that that we is really important to differentiate. Absolutely. And so, OK, so if we're talking about the you right now, what uh, what do you think folks who have that capacity and that safety can do? What is the best way to connect maybe with folks who you're hoping to bring back into reality. So what I've done with those folks is a, I try not to antagonize them. I try not to just yes. shout a bunch of facts at them. I don't think that works. That that no. leads people to to double down and get defensive. I try and maintain, you know, as much as I can, a kind of social connection with people because I want to be able to have a social influence on them. So, you know, if that means we have some kind of shared interest that I can kind of default to. So we're not constantly talking about, you know, these sort of crazy beliefs, but I could still sort of stay in their orbit and still kind of look for ways to get in there, you know, then I'll do that. But yeah, fundamentally, I want to have the facts ready at my disposal, but I also don't want to use them to kind of browbeat or belittle somebody. So, you know, I, I had a friend who was very dubious about about vaccines when they were first out. And, um, you know, he would he would send me studies of, say, you know, vaccines cause Bell's palsy or something like that, you know, was one of them, you know, and I and so I I didn't just dismiss it because I understood that his fear of vaccines was about a fear of like personal health and safety that yeah. for him was at least as pressing as his fear of, of actually getting COVID. So you know, so I did the research. I found out how many cases of Bell's palsy had been, you know, thought to be caused by the vaccine. It turned out to be statistically negligible compared to the general population. But I didn't just come back at that. I, you know, I tried first of all to really just sort of acknowledge that that fear of being made sick by something because I think that's a basic fear. I think it, we all have that fear, and so I, you know, I tried to just sort of say, in you know, so many words, you know, your fears are valid. It is scary. I totally get it. I wouldn't urge you to jump into something. I'm getting this vaccine because I trust it and I have no reason not to, but I, I understand where you're coming from. I did a bunch of research because I wanted to know for myself, here's what I found, if that's useful. You know, and I just kind of did kind of that kind of stuff. I kind of tried to really validate the fear without validating the, the fear response. And, you know, after a couple of weeks, you know, I mean, he he was he was a little later in the process. This was probably like April or May, but he just told me one day, you know, oh, they uh, they set up a little vaccine site in my uh, you know my Walgreens, so I just got vaccinated. Yeah. You know, and I I didn't have to have the conversation. I didn't have to like do you know. So I think it was just like really trying to validate people's fears and their anxiousness at its base level without 
really engaging on the the surface level, which is the conspiracy theory that manifests itself. And either you can kind of rob it of its potency, or you can kind of slowly disentangle the two in some way. So, yeah, absolutely. It seems like it has to be a slow process because all of this is based in fear. And I think a lot of us believe immediately that these things are based in malice versus a reaction to a genuine fear that we probably all have, but we have different frameworks from which to process something so big as COVID and the vaccine, because those things are scary. And I think that they were scary to everyone, but people were processing them through their lenses, right? Right. 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 Yes. And again, saying that they are motivated from fear, again, I I don't mean them to minimize the actual results. And, you know, again, I'm less interested in empathy than I am in sort of practical diffusing. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. he's not. not, I think that we yeah, we tend to go toward empathy because uh, we really want that to work, don't we? You know, we really want the love to prevail. But sometimes it's it's just more patience, I think. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Colin. This has been a great conversation. And I just so appreciate all of your work and just the the muscle you put into what you do. It's uh, been so helpful to our show. And uh, just thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks a lot for having me on. It's been a lot of fun. This was American Hysteria. Make sure you head to Scribd.com, that's S-C-R-I-B-D.com, to get an exclusive copy of Colin's new piece, Land of Delusion. And also, check out Ghostland, The Unidentified, and the one I'm reading now, The Afterlives of Saints. If you want more of our show, head to patreon.com slash American Hysteria for access to early ad-free episodes and access to our talk show, Hysteria Home Companion, and more. That's patreon.com slash American Hysteria. This episode has sound design by Clear Camo Studios and was produced by Miranda Zickler. And I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Thanks, as always, for listening, and we'll be back next week with a brand new, very exciting, very jolly new series. Until then, I hope you have a great week.